Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kishanu B'Mitzvotav V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah We've reached the last section of the book of Leviticus which is a double portion this year called Behar and Bechukotai and um, Bahar describes the sabbatical year and the jubilee year, as some of you know. I'm wondering, who, who joined me when I was teaching last fall about the sabbatical year? Um, great, we're going to review some of that. Uh, because this year, on the Jewish calendar, is the sabbatical year. In, uh, in other words, we're going to study how in Torah it says that every seventh year you, are, you shall let the land lie fallow, release all debts, and essentially return to a, give the earth a Sabbath and return to a state of harmony with each other and with the land. That's the idea of, a, of the sabbatical year, and it comes from the Torah. And, um, hi, Laura. Hi. And that's okay. Um, back in now, how do we know that this is a sabbatical year? We don't actually, in any official way, except that when, in the early 1880s, the very first wave of the of Jews from Europe started coming back to Israel to create farming settlements, farming communities. They were religious Jews, and uh, they wanted. Now that they were back in the land of Israel, it says, when you enter the land, every seventh year you shall give it a rest. So they wanted to reestablish the sabbatical year. So fairly arbitrarily, I believe. I mean, I'm sure there was some calculation involved, but who knows how to calculate that. They chose a sabbatical year. So since the 18, late 1800s, we have resumed a seven-year cycle of counting such that this year, the one that started on Rosh Hashanah, the year 5,775, and ends this coming September in Rosh Hashanah, um, is a sabbatical year. And so I can't, I want to acknowledge that, and therefore I want to pay attention to that as we study this week's portion. This, if I was going to give a title to what I've learned studying about this, it's that I would call it seven is the magic number. Right? In Judaism, in the Torah especially, as the foundation of Judaism, seven is the number that represents God's creation, fulfillment, wholeness. Uh, and uh, you'll see how the word seven, how the number seven plays. And some of you have heard me talk about this before. So let's open to the portion. I'll tell you, it's on page 850. Uh, that is Leviticus chapter 25. 850. I know this page because this was uh, one of my daughter's bat, bat mitzvah portions. This is Timna's portion. So. Mm -hmm. 
So how, um, how is sabbatical marked in Israel today? Um, uh, there are several opinions. <laughs> That's the answer, right? The, um, uh, I think I'll describe that later in the class. It's fairly interesting, but it's also not necessarily in the spirit of the commandments. It may be in the letter of the commandments, but not necessarily in the spirit of the commandments. So I'll save that for the end. So, structurally, we're in the end of the book of Leviticus. In Mary Douglas's book, which I've referred to over the weeks and over the years, she understands the structure of the book of Leviticus to be a virtual journey from the outside of the sanctuary through its courtyard, into the holy space, and then into the Holy of Holies. She considers these, these chapters, the end of Leviticus, to be the Holy of Holies. She has a good argument. Look at how it starts in verse 1. The Eternal One, yod spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, so, what's significant about that? Why mention Mount Sinai? Because that's where we got the laws. Yeah, but we've gotten 4,000 other laws. Um, it seems to me, literarily, like we're coming to some kind of, we started at Mount Sinai, let's, we're, back, we're back at Mount Sinai. And if we're at Mount Sinai, then something very significant significant is going to be, uh, is going to be um, uh, um, revealed, brought forth. Not only that, what I've learned about the literary structure of Torah is that um, they love to come full circle in any given narrative or pre presentation structure. So if you look at the end of chapter 26, um, which would be on 869. The last verse, which hopefully we'll get to cover this. These are the laws, rules, and instructions that yod heh vav -Hey established through Moses on Mount Sinai with the Israelite people. So Mount Sinai is invoked there and there to make kind of a literary ring. And then once more at the end of chapter 27, which is the very end of Leviticus. These are the commandments that the Eternal gave Moses for the Israelite people on Mount Sinai. Now, if Mount Sinai had been mentioned anywhere else in Leviticus, that would be one thing but it's only mentioned here. So that means chapter 25, 26, and 27 form some kind of climax or coda to the book Leviticus. The way Mary Douglas presents it is that she thinks in what she calls the pedimental structure of the Torah that chapter 25 and 27 are holding up chapter 26 
just like she sees in Parshat Kedoshim, where you read chapter 19, and that's where it says, love your neighbor as yourself, and all other kinds of amazing ethical precepts, rise before the ages, treat the stranger as you would treat your citizen, that's all chapter 19. And then you read chapter 18 and chapter 20, and they're all about forbidden sexual relationships. And you go, what's going on here? Right? Uh, here I am, I'm being ethically uplifted, and now on one side and the other launches into like a huge list of forbidden relationships. Her thesis is that 18 and 20 are there holding up chapter 19, as it were. Um, and that there's this balancing act in the literary structure of the Torah where the central thesis will be held up by, comp by, by on either side, compar comparable kinds of content from one side to the other. It's a very compelling thesis. Um, so I wanted to point out that Mount Sinai is where we're standing. The top of Mount Sinai, as we've discussed by analogy, is the Holy of Holies. If you recall from previous weeks, the idea of there being an outer ring uh, where the Israelites are, where, and um, the, the precinct of God where they cannot enter, at Mount Sinai, if you'll recall, it says, and Moses says, do not come up to the mountain or God may burst out and, you know, consume you. Remember, there's that consuming fire that we've talked about. Uh, here in the sanctuary, it's the same thing. The Israelites are not permitted in the precinct of the Mishkan, the tent of meeting, the sanctuary, the dwelling place for God. Then there's a level up the mountain. Who goes up there? Moses, Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu, who later we discussed uh, can't handle it or don't have the right preparation, and the 70 elders. So there's another layer of the mountain, which is then matched by where the Levites can go, which is into the outer precincts, the, the, the courtyard of the Mishkan, and even the, uh, the, the chamber before the Holy of Holies. And then it says there's smoke and fire around the top of the mountain. Who's the only one who can go there? Moses. That's where God's energy touches the earth. That's where, that's where the fire is. And then in the Mishkan, uh, remember this elaborate chapters upon chapters at the beginning of Leviticus where Aaron is invested by his brother Moses with the capacity and the responsibility to, to bear, to, to go into the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is marked by a curtain and by smoke and incense and all kinds of ways. So I'm very persuaded by that analogy of the holy mountain and of, so of a vertical metaphor and of this concentric circles going interior metaphor as being um, an attempt to recreate in the Israelite camp the experience at Mount Sinai. And that's why I don't think it's an accident that Mount Sinai is invoked here at the end of Leviticus. Um, I find that to be very interesting. Good question. Yes. Uh, 
Is there anything about the commandments on Mount Sinai that makes it special com compared to any of the other commandments that are given not on Mount Sinai? Ah, uh, well, there are the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Okay. But then Moses goes up again and gets the rest of the Torah. So in effect, everything. it's everything. Right. In effect, it's everything, even though the Ten Commandments do get an elevated... Um, yes? When you were talking about the chapters that are holding up the middle chapter... Yes. I had this image of the Torah being held onto the whatever the... The ancient, the wood oh, the As you hold it up. the finials, the um, the uh, the trees of life. Yeah. So that you know you're holding. It's like was analogous to me, like holding up the whole Torah. That was the image that came mm -hmm. for me. That's a great. I like that. That feels very. Uh, I can feel that you hold up the Torah by its uh, by its supports. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Thank you so much. Yes, Julia. Do you think this has anything any relation? the fact that this is close to Shavuot? That's another thing I wanted to mention. This, <laughs> Bahar and Bechukotai are coming just a couple of weeks before Shavuot, which is the 50th day in the counting of the Omer. And we're going to be discussing the 50th year, uh, which is the Jubilee year. So the counting of sevens is central here. And I was thinking about how Shavuot is getting near. Thank you. Yes? I was thinking about the concentric circles. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of organizations that are organized in just this way with concentric circles. Often if there's a secret, you're in the mystery at the center. You're in the inner circle. I mean, in my book, this is exactly how Jane was organized in a series of concentric circles. People tell people what it was because you had to keep it secret. And because initially when we had the guy, the doctor, uh, but tell them what you did. So uh, back before Roe v. Wade, there was a group in Chicago whose code name was Jane, who um, set up an underground abortion service and um, eventually learned, the women in the group learned how to perform abortions ourselves and um, perform something at least 11,000 illegal, underground, free, or low cost. But when we started, we worked with this doctor, and he only wanted a couple of people to know who he was. Mm -hmm. So the group evolved as a series of concentric circles, right. which is a mystery at the center. A mystery, that's right. And I mean, this the Holy of Holies is a mystery, that's right. right. But as I'm listening to it, it could be mystery, it could be secret, but this is a natural way that you would organize if there is a secret or a mystery at the center. Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you. That's right. We have to ask ourselves, um, in our egalitarian ethos, should we all have access to the inner sanctum? Right? It's a good question, isn't it? Uh, or should there be, is there, a, is there, or is there, is there something of value in being an, an initiate? Uh, I'd have to say there must be some middle ground in that where it's where everyone has the potential of becoming an initiate rather than it being uh, hereditary uh, but that there needs to be an initiation into the mystery yeah. um, 
There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's needed in the, when you're transmitting some kind of wisdom. Yeah, yes? You know, Stranger in a Strange Land mm-hmm. yes. talks a lot about those concentric circles. In the middle is people who spoke Martian. Hmm. And then, and it went out from there in terms, it was like the Holy of Holies. One could make that right. I haven't read that book in so it's a long. Really cool once there was a Martian named Valentine, I Hold on, hold on. Heinlein makes it uh-huh. difficult to read. I know he's so misogynistic, but if you get past that. I didn't notice when I was 18. I didn't notice when I was 15. <laughs> okay, hold on. Stu and then Blaze. It's interesting, the Masons and the Mormons, Mormons especially, have that same kind of inner sanctum right. that only certain people can go into their inner sanctum. That's right. So does Scientology. So does oh, so. Right. I'm not so saying then, that's, yeah. no, 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 no. This, this is a way to organize around a mystery, and uh, it can be, the people who have access to the mystery have great power. That's right, and that's the point of it, is that this is a, a power dynamic. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of organizing power. Yes, it is. And it's a critique of the priesthood. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, and it's true with all politics. Everything, yeah. Yeah. Yes, Lee? Well, I'm thinking about Congress. I mean, we've, we've made an absolute mess of, or somebody has, made a mess of it because Congress and, and the committees within Congress are keeping secrets that the rest of us need to have. So it certainly is a a system that is easily converted into something really harmful. Easily corrupted, because power corrupts. So um, uh, that's why you need a, in in an ideal society, there's a system of checks and balances. Uh, The checks and balances in the Torah are very interesting, Mm. right? Aaron, um, Aaron is there to serve the people. Um, remember, we talked at length about his getup, how uh, you could just call it an incredibly fancy outfit, but it's filled with symbolism of, rep- of him being the representative of all the people of Israel as he enters the Holy of Holies, just like Moses is the representative of all the people as he goes up to the mountain. And then in the Parsha Korach in a few weeks, Korach says... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should get the exact quote just so. Yeah. Who made you a big shot? Yeah, who, yeah. He, that's the exact quote. Who made you a big shot? <laughs> Is that the quote? Now, Korach <laughs> betook himself along with Datan and Abiram and son of, on son of Pelet to rise up against Moses together with 250 representatives of the Israelites' chieftains chosen with fine reputations. And they combined against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. For all the community are holy, all of them. And the eternal is in their midst. Why then do you raise yourselves above the eternal's congregation? I love that in Torah, this, this is like on the table, right? Um, Torah is not about an ideal society. Torah is about human society and how we can elevate it. That's why, one of the reasons I'm attached to it is it doesn't paint a picture of us, uh, of say, the children of Israel as some idealized community. But it's not like they have, what happens to Korah? Korah, yeah, yeah, we'll discuss it in a few weeks. What happens to Korah? Well, (laughs) Moses 
is not a self-aggrandizing leader. On the contrary, right? We can read in the text who Moses is and why, he, why he's a great leader. Because it says he's the most humble man on earth. Basically, that's what the story tells us. So Korach, on the other hand, betrays in his language uh, that he may not be so interested in all, he may be more of a demagogue. Of course, there are people who take Korach's side. And uh, uh, we'll never know. Uh, Blaze? Uh, two things. Number one, you're in the lecture center tomorrow morning. <laughs> Thank you, the lecture center. I'm not sure where that is. It's in Olin. If you go out the back door of Olin on the right as you enter, then the left, then you turn left and you get to the lectures. Okay. okay. So the other thing is that I was just I was listening a few days ago to a pro, uh, program about the dissemination of information in the age of the internet, and a lot of things are kept secret and given out on a need-to-know basis. And what this person was pointing out is that we don't, and today, we have no idea who needs to know because we don't know where the creativity is going to emerge from and where the ideas are going to come from. So the, the old need to know is no longer valid. And everybody needs to know. Everybody needs to know. We live in an extraordinary moment. Oh, my goodness. Could you want to say something, Bruce? No, OK. So let's look at the text now on page 850. When you enter the land that I assign to you, the land shall observe a Sabbath of the eternal. Veshavta ha'aretz Shabbat Ladonai. So Shavta, Shabbat, means to stop working to stop laboring. Shavta Shabbat. Sheish shanim tizra sadecha, v'sheish shanim tizmor karmecha, v'asavta et tuata. Six years you shall sow your field, six years prune your vineyard and gather in the yield. Uvashana hashvi'it, Shabbat Shabbaton, yihyeh la'aretz. Shabbat laronai. How many times are we hearing Shabbat, okay? But in the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath, a complete Sabbath, a Sabbath of yod heh vav You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. Et spiach ketzircha lo tirtzor, vet inveni zirecha lo shnat shabbaton yeh la'aretz. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your untrimmed vines. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. But you may eat whatever the land during its Sabbath will produce. Who? You, your male and female slaves, the hired and bound laborers who live with you, and your cattle and the wild beasts in your land may eat all its yield. There's a question. Yes. What's the difference between not eating, reaping the aftergrowth of your harvest and eating whatever the land produces? I'm not sure. Okay. That's it's a not, good question. 
Um, I thought they were allowed to pick anything that the land produces. Yeah, like if there are grapes on the vine, yeah. you didn't do anything to do it. You could just That's a good it. question, Stu, and I'm, I'm not sure I understand that. Thank you. Oh, it says it defines aftergrowth on the bottom. Yeah. What's that? Aftergrowth. Grain that grows from seed accidentally dropped during the harvest. Well, how are you going to Why wouldn't you? Yeah. How would you, tell? <laughs> you may only eat the growth direct from the field. You can't carry it away, I guess. Or, 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 you have to carry okay. Oh, verse 12, okay. 25-12. Eat the growth direct from the field. <coughs> okay, I'm not sure. Okay. It's like if you know that you planted it. If you know that you planted it, you can't, you can't reap it. It has to be something that just the earth produces. Okay, let's sort of, sort of go into soft focus here a little <coughs> bit. What words, phrases, does this remind you of anything uh, else in the Torah? Does it ring any bells? Um, the commandment about Shabbat. The commandment about Shabbat in the Ten Commandments. First of all, let's look at it. On, uh, if you want to look, it's on page um, four seventy-eight. Verse 8. Zachor Yom HaShabbat. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. Uvayom HaShvi'i Shabbat Ladonai. Oh. And it said back here, Uvashnat HaShvi'it Shabbat Ladonai. So the seventh day and the seventh year are days are, are Sabbaths for God. You shall not do any work. Who? You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle, or the stranger who is within your settlements. For in six days the Eternal made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, and then rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yod Hevavi blessed Al Kain Adonai at Yom HaShabbat by Yikad Shehu. Blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Okay, so it's the same language. Yes, Bruce? Six years you may sow your field. Uh, I assign you the land shall observe a Sabbath of the eternal. There seems to be something almost mystical about this land, not other land. You don't observe a Sabbath of the land outside Israel. Correct. Can you talk a little about what it is about the land of Israel that seems almost alive? Uh, yes, it's, it, the land of Israel is the land where the children of Israel are meant to fulfill the covenant of God. How is it different than the land outside Israel? What would be it's been designated as the place where this unique experiment, a people covenanted with God, to manifest God's justice on earth are going to fulfill this commandment. Now, what happens to that is that the land of Israel, in Jewish thinking and in many other thinking, gets um, mystical status as being somehow um, uh, uh, qualitatively different than anywhere else in the world. 
I hold that it's not qualitatively different other than it's the place where God's big experiment is happening with the people that God has chosen to give the Torah to. Um, and I think that comes from uh, a time... So Other the, people are spewed out if they don't, of this land. They can be other places. The people that no, the be, children of Israel before. are going to get spewed out. But I mean, the people that came before I've spoken about in that one. Right, right. They get cleared out. But, the, because this land is, is sort of where this holy experiment is yes. going to happen. But, it's the children of Israel. The, the other people aren't spewed out. Uh, they're, they're defeated and expelled. It's the people of Israel who are going to get spewed out, vomited out of the land, if they don't fulfill this covenant. Mm -hmm. So the children of Israel's relationship to the land is fascinating that way because the land itself, the way they treat the land is contingent on their ability to live on that land. Uh, now, you know, the holiness of the land of Israel has become an axiom in many parts of the Jewish world where the land itself is holy as opposed to the rest of the earth. I'm sorry that thinking happened. You know, as far as I'm concerned, um, in pre-modern times, the people, whoever the tribe was, had their sacred hunting grounds. Right? This is the way we organized. We didn't know the globe was round. We didn't know, have a picture of what the whole world was. We had a completely different organization of space and time. Our idea of the globe being the place where the human family lives, we've said this many times, is an incredibly recent development in human history. So every people had its sacred land, and their relationship to that sacred land uh, was uh, unique. And as we know from stories, say, about Native Americans who were forcibly expelled from their land, they shriveled up and died, right? They, they understood themselves as being the products of that land of having sprung from it, of it being truly part of their being. And that's a pre-modern understanding that is calling to us today for us to try to recapture in some way so that we can relate to the earth in this way. Um, I feel like, you know, the holiness of the land of Israel as a concept doesn't hold up for me. The, in, in the land, the holiness of the land. Uh, our historic relationship to it, that holds up for me. But declaring some piece of land or some people, the Jewish people, and this global era, uniquely holy compared to the rest of humanity, it's time for me to transcend those ideas. However, the spirit behind the idea has to be translated into modern terms, in my opinion. This land you're standing on is holy, and we've already done that when you sing that song. Every piece of land we're standing on is holy. Right. Well, you're going to see why that the 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 in our portion why um, uh, uh, why the Torah also implies that because it says, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts." The entire Malel Kol Haaretz Kavod, the entire earth. Right. So it's not talking about the land of Israel there. So there's 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 different understandings in Torah, but it's tricky. It's a tricky business. Um, uh, it's all too easy. 
to remain in the mindset that we're special and that our land is extra special and um, in a category other than the rest of humanity. That's a pre-modern understanding that everybody held about themselves, not just the Jews. But and the Torah allows you to have a more modern understanding if you want to call it a modern understanding. All peoples will be blessed through you. There seems to be a responsibility there that finally brings everybody together. Yes, but, but there I think, seems to be uh, some kind of a mission. Yes, Isaiah says, you shall be a light unto the nations. The mission we have is not a mission that makes us superior, uh, inherently superior. It's a mission that many, uh, you know, that the Jews say, oh, please Burdensome. choose somebody else. Yeah, the, 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 the mission is to bring the, uh, the, the, the prisoner out of the dungeon open the eyes of the blind to uh, um, be a light to the nations, all of that, yeah. Jay? But it, but it does mention uh, male and female slaves. Yeah. So, so this, this sort of contradicts what you, this equality you're trying to get No, 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 it doesn't contradict it. I'm saying that in the time of the Bible, slavery was a well-known and completely accepted institution. The, the difference that, that, and we've talked about this before, so forgive me, the difference here in the Bible is that, first of all, an Israelite slave must be permitted to go free after six years. In other words, they're they more like an indentured servant. And then somebody who becomes part of your household because they lost their land due to debt, at the end of 50 years, their land holding is restored. So slavery is not a permanent state. It's a state of indenturedness. So I think I'm missing the point here, because are the slaves Israelites themselves? Are those the there are two kinds of slaves. And you have this, there are Israelite slaves who get treated in one way, and then there are foreign slaves who get treated in another way. The foreign slaves and the Israelite slaves the Torah says you must not mistreat them because you know what it's like because you were strangers and slaves in the land of Egypt. So the institution of slavery is never abolished in the Torah. But the idea that every slave is a human being and needs to be treated as such is enshrined in the Torah. And it's enshrined in the Torah and this is the huge step forward. The idea that every human being is created in God's image, and therefore every human being deserves a basic dignity to their existence. And the check on all of this is the number seven. On the seventh day, we just read in the Ten Commandments, on the seventh day, you are not the boss. You are equal to everyone who works for you, whether it's your workers, your servants, your children, your pack animals, Everyone gets a day off. This is the great reminder in the cycle of time that the Torah institutes. And in the seventh year, something else happens. In the seventh year, we can go back to our portion, even the land which you have been controlling. Remember how it says in Genesis, and God gave all the species of the planet to, and said to the human being, you shall, be, um, shall, shall have dominion 
over them, un except on the seventh of everything. On the seventh of everything, you are to remember that you are but a creature and that this land is not yours, right? And that's the big, that's the huge thing about seven in the Torah. So this isn't the only place in our Parsha. Well, let's look at the other, the other time when the Ten Commandments is uh, recited in Deuteronomy. Um, that's on page 1197, if you want to flip there. Right, if I wasn't doing that, I would have hung it up a while ago. <laughs> so you're not suggesting putting aside, well, that's just so ancient and so difficult that I'm suggesting we don't some, want to read that now. I'm suggesting something much more sublime, which uh -huh. is that uh, the Torah has encoded uh -huh. a way to live in balance with, the, with society and with the earth through the number seven. And that is the heartbeat of Torah and of Jewish teaching. And even if we don't literally in our lives observe the Sabbath every seventh day, a sabbatical year, there's a teaching here about what it means to work six days, have dominion over the earth, have dominion over, be the masters of our uh, domain, except power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So every seventh day and every seventh year, and in fact we'll see every seventh month, there is a built-in corrective to human nature, right? Torah doesn't, never claims that humans aren't ambitious, greedy, uh, creative, corruptible, venal, Right? But Torah also understands that humans are marvelous, a little lower than the angels, magnificent. And how are you going to create some kind of rhythm to life and rule to life so that the inevitable thrust to power doesn't turn into absolute corruption? You do it through the number seven in the Torah. That is crystal clear to me. Yes? It's the basis of union contracts. That people can't work seven days a week. That's right. I don't know if there was any idea in our society before that that people voluntarily did it. It would appear that this idea of a Sabbath, that everybody, from king to commoner, everybody, to pack animal, right, to beast of burden, is a Jewish idea from the Torah. And it is a gift of the Torah to the world, in my opinion. Uh, uh, it's not only that, it's the, the idea of, remember studying about indentured servants who came to uh, you know, the United States, to the colonies from England. They served six years, and then in the seventh year, they would, would have paid off their 
their debt. Uh, and then there's a sabbatical year for uh, anyone who's lucky enough to get one. <laughs> and uh, in, universities. in universities, did you ever get a sabbatical? I had one. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad. Out of many more than seven years. Uh, you got a sabbatical every 49 years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Betty. And for anyone else who will accept it. Who mm -hmm. will accept it. And I go back now and I say, well, where is that? I'm not sure. Okay, so I, this is some research I've had to get back on. Okay, if you find the verse, let me know and we'll look at the Hebrew. Amsegula. Right. If they, Sukula means cherished or treasured. If you accept this covenant, then you will become a nation of priests and a holy people. Right? If, then. It's, it's, uh, conditional. It, it's conditional at Mount Sinai. That is real clear. Now, there's a whole other stream in Judaism that makes it inherent as opposed to conditional. I reject that stream of Jewish thought about our covenantal relationship with God. I consider it to be conditional based on our behavior, and it's certainly conditional in these chapters. Mm -hmm. uh, Gail and then Stu. This isn't about Torah, but it's that I was just struck sitting here that we, in, in the United States that we live in today, we are so removed from what has been human history and life until even here so recently. I was thinking about slavery and that um, New York State had legalized slavery until the 1820s. Right. And we were the second largest slave market in New York City in the United States. The market where people were sold and bought was in New York City, second largest. I, you know, I didn't know that. I just read that. But, um, but that makes sense because it was New York. The Albany Museum a couple of years ago on slavery in New York State. Well, wait, just finish what you're saying. Yeah, so, what I'm saying is just that my son has a house that was built in the early 1800s, and when he looked up the deed for it, there were two slaves living, they counted in the census, on the premises in that house. Okay? And I'm not talking about current mistreatment or discrimination, but simple, actual slavery. And there's a novel called The Known Land, written by an African-American writer, whose name I can't think of right now, which describes, among other things, slaveholders in Virginia who were themselves black. I'm just saying that this has been a world. This has been an accepted part of human life forever. And it's only recently that there's been the change so that people like us look at this and go, oh my God, how could they have allowed slavery? Right. But the, the advance here is phenomenal. 
and was not done and is still not done with Arab slaves in most of the world. They don't right. get a day off. They don't get treated as human beings. So just, just, I, I feel. Just, I Thank you. Yes. 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 Sorry, uh, I wasn't aiming no, at no, the no, 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 description of slavery that exists today. Uh, I was reading one of the, one of the things that I preparing for the next life of what it was called, things about Chinese people who were farmed out throughout the United States to service our food in Chinese restaurants, yes. who pay thousands and thousands of dollars yes. in order to be illegally brought here. Yes. Uh, the law doesn't have any effect on them. Uh, they live in dormitories. Yes. It takes years and years. They don't they know don't. when it's paid off. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, I've, I've heard. It's closer to slavery, or is it not? not and you can't leave. Tens of millions of people in the world are slave, enslaved in some form or other. Yes, yes, absolutely. Very, absolutely. Very the, uh, some of my colleagues are busy with the tomato uh, uh, pickers in Florida who, are, uh, until some recent, they've been, there's been an, a successful uh, activism uh, PR campaign to shame um, uh, some big tomato buyers like McDonald's into not buying these tomatoes anymore because these people are actually locked into their trailers at night and are, th this, this is happening in Central Florida right now. Jay? Yeah, I just heard last night on the John Stewart show, you had a guess, I don't know if anybody heard that show, but this guy just, just wrote a book on, 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 on religion and, was, and this subject of slavery came up. And accurate or not, he claimed that in this country, the abolition, abolitionists and the pro-slavery, post-slavery communities all use the same, not only the same Bible to justify or not to assure slavery, mm -hmm. but the same, same verses in the same Bible. Verses. Yes. Yeah. Same verses to justify. So you talk about interpretation of the Bible, and this, is a, this was a perfect example of Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Stu, you wanted to say yeah, something. You know, another one where seven is really interesting, it just occurs to me. When they're in the wilderness, if they gathered too much mana, it rotted on them. And if they, get, they always had enough. So it's sort of like a statement saying, don't accumulate. We are in a, in a world of accumulation. Some mm -hmm. of us just lots of little junk, others are billions of dollars. And there's something about that that is really unethical about this. Mm -hmm. I want more, more, more. I'm, I'm convinced that, um, that the idea of the Sabbath is to remind us that we do not have dominion over the earth and that we are, in fact, beneficiaries of life, not creators of life. Susan? But what's incredible to me about is this blending of this mystical text that lasted so, for so long, how did they know that human beings were really gonna go crazy in some form or another, and they put in here this thing about the sevens to, to help us self-correct if in fact we are willing to pay attention. <coughs> it's, it's remarkable to me that they knew that we were crazy people. They knew because they observed. <laughs> human, human, human beings, this is human, I mean, but it is fantastic. It is really remarkable. It's fantastic. Because you can 
make you, all kinds of rules to the, 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 I mean, you know, this seems <coughs> amazing to me. You need to self-correct. That's correct. That's right. And in the language of the Torah, that's what the great spirit has commanded us to do. Yeah. To your point, what, what, what's amazing to me is not that they saw it then, because I don't think human beings were so great then. They just didn't have, you know, I, mean, I don't think we've changed that much. No, I think they were responding to no, the same human they, situation. They had the awareness of it. But I think what's, what's amazing is that the, the messages are still ones we can hear. That, that after all these years, we can still hear those messages. Yeah. I don't think human nature has it's gotten never, a whole lot better. No, we no. just have more tools to yeah. mess around with. They kind of knew that we may not get better. This is an elegant, for me, incredibly elegant, sustainable set of rules. Because six days, get rich, do your thing. But on the seventh day, we're all in it together. Everybody, every animal, and the earth itself. For me, it's absolutely sublime. Uh, did someone else have a hand up? Uh, yes, please. I didn't, but I do now. Um, it seems like this is um, all about, or one thing that it's about, is the cultivation of humility and knowing that you didn't make yourself and that whatever power you have can come from you by your own exclusive work and achievements. And I was just curious to see if there was any link between the word for seven and humility in Hebrew. I don't know. There is not. The, word, the, the link between the word for seven, sheva, is a different Hebrew word, which is repeated over and over in this parsha, which is sova, with a sin rather than a shin, spelled the same way. Sova means satiated or um, filled, satisfied. And so there's something about, so the word play in this Parsha is between Sheva, the seventh of each thing, and a condition of Sova, which is a condition of having enough, of feeling satiated. Now if, again, if we know that all gifts come from God, as it were, right? In other words, that, that whatever we have, the energy we have, we do our best in the six days of the week to, shall we say, actualize ourselves, right? But the goal of the awareness of the seventh is that that is, how would we say, an illusion of selfhood. Mm-hmm. And that, so you want to, each seventh, stop, and remember the seventh day and make it holy. And notice that your fullness is not the product of your own self, but a gift that's coming to you and through you at all times. In that awareness of humility, then the natural, uh, the, the natural impulse is to share, right? Share and share alike. The Torah does not expect us to do that seven days a week. <laughs> well, um, well uh, yes and no. Uh, the, I, hopefully, the awareness of the seventh day permeates the rest of our time. But striving, but what I'm saying is the Torah does not ever 
say that we have to deny our um, our Drive. appetites, yeah. drives, ambitions, desires. Not deny them. We have to channel them towards a greater awareness of where they come from and what they're for. And without life, you couldn't even strive. So, right. You know. Right. That's what I meant to say. Now, let's see how the, the fourth commandment is phrased in Deuteronomy. I, that was on page 1197. It's uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy and sanctify it, as yod your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, it is a Sabbath of Adonai, your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your ox or your ass, or any of your cattle, or the stranger in your settlements. And here's where it differs from the uh, Exodus version. It is in the rationale. So that your male and female slave may rest as you do. It's explicit here. Okay, so if it wasn't explicit in the fourth commandment in, in Exodus, it's explicit in the repetition of the law in Deuteronomy. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Eternal your God freed you from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Eternal your God has commanded you to la'asot et yom hashabbat, to make a Sabbath. And the rationale is, so that your male and female slave, the people who are under your control, they are not under your control that day. It's so deep. I always get the chills thinking about it, actually. Uh, if we all could uh, have a check on our egos, a reminder. Well, here it is. That's, that's essentially the rhythm of Jewish life. Um, if we avail ourselves of it, if we can self-correct on a regular basis. Bob? There's another difference. Uh, in, in one rendition, it says shamar. Yeah. Right. You should observe. And in the second, it says zachor. You should remember. Observe and remember. Um, and uh, there's a lot of commentary on that. Um, my favorite, I have two favorites now. Uh, if you're Shomer Shabbat, it means you're fulfilling the traditional rules of Shabbat. That's what it means in common parlance. Uh, and so Rabbi Larry Kushner said, even if you're not a Shomer Shabbat, you can be a Zocher Shabbat. Even if you're not strictly observing the Sabbath in traditional forms, you can still be a Jew who remembers that it's Sabbath. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot to that. On the other hand, Rabbi Miriam at our recent workshop uh, said, I want to be an observant Jew. And what she meant was that beautiful pun. You know, I want to be able to pay attention. Observant so I've been taking that on, I think. I, to be observant. You know, I want to be an observant Jew by paying attention to the world around me. So I said, good, I'm an observant Jew. That's my goal. Anyway, 
Uh, so there's two nice, nice things with that. But there, there's another difference between those two commandments. Does anybody know what it is? In addition to the explicit yeah. rationale of your, uh, your female and male slave have to rest with you, it's that the first one says, why? Because in six days God created the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day God rested. And this one says, because you were slaves in the land of Egypt and God right, freed you freed from there. Yeah. Right? So there are two rationales for observing the seventh. One is that God, creator of all, that's what God did, and we're supposed to also behave in that way. And uh, the other is that we, in fact, know what it's like not to have a Sabbath, because we experienced it, to be treated as subhuman, or even sub-beast of burden, right? And so uh, that's why in the Kiddush it says, Zecher um, Mitzrayim, and um, Zikaron uh, It's a remembrance of Masei Bereshit. They take that from the fourth, from Exodus, and Zecher they take from Deuteronomy and put them together in the Kiddush of Shabbat. And also in Lachadodi, Shamor v'Zachor b'Dibur Echad. Yeah. So now, I want to look at another place where the sabbatical year is is instructed of us, and that is in Deuteronomy, chapter fifteen, on page twelve sixty nine. If you want to look, be helpful to have a tablet. Uh, and just be able to scroll on it. But we have this old technology here called a book. <laughs> I know, I just love that this is old technology. True, true. And I have fingers. And I have little stickies, too, so I'm fine. Look at... The older technology would be on stone. A scroll, scroll first. So, page... Uh, Twelve, what page? Uh, Twelve sixty-nine. You there? Yeah. Here we go. At the bottom, every seventh year, you shall practice <coughs> remission of debts, letting go of debts. Taaseh shmita. So, why this is called a shmita year, and also a sabbatical year? is because in some places in Torah it's referred to as a Shabbat Laronai or Shabbat La'aretz, a Sabbath for the land. And in another places in Torah it's referred to as a Shemitah, a release year. Release is the right word for Shemitah. Um, and this shall be the nature of the Shemitah year. All creditors shall remit or release the due that they claim from their fellow Israelites. They shall not dun their fellow Israelites or kin, for the remission proclaimed is of the eternal. You may dun the foreigner, but you must remit whatever is due to you from your kin. Dun means charge interest. And a foreigner means? Someone who's not an Israelite, but is living among you. Uh, again, these are the old categories. Uh, it doesn't mean you can uh, gouge the foreigner. It means you're allowed to charge interest. Uh, because these laws, th this law pertains to Israelites. Uh, so, the seventh year is the year of release 
of debt. Um, uh, and it says, there shall be no needy among you. <coughs> Since the eternal your God will bless you in the land, the eternal your God is giving you as a hereditary portion. If you heed the eternal your God and take care to keep all this instruction that I enjoin upon you this day. Okay, and then it says the eternal your God will allow you to extend loans to many nations. In other words, you'll be, you'll be creditors, not debtors. It's all going to be great if you follow this. If, however, there is a needy person among you, one of your kin in any of your settlements in the land that the eternal your God is giving you, do not harden your heart and shut your hand against your needy kin. Rather, you must open your hand and lend whatever is sufficient to meet the need. Beware lest you harbor the base thought, the seventh year is coming. And then, I'm not giving a loan in the sixth year. I, 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 I just have to forgive it next year. Right? That's pretty reasonable. Uh, but no, you have to do it. Now, I don't want to spend more on A right now, but that's, uh, so, so we're, that's the, um, and then it says six years. Also, after six years, in the seventh year, you let your slave, Hebrew slaves go free. Not your former? <laughs> no, they're a different category. In, remember, this is, this is a time when the Israelites are part of a covenanted people, and they treat each other in the memory of their slavery. You can't, the Israelites can't be slaves in perpetuity because we are servants of yod who took us out of Egypt to make, and God made us God's servants in the Torah. But you cannot treat any slave ruthlessly. And every slave gets a day off, and every, but there is a difference in the Torah between the foreign slave and the Israelite slave. They, the Israelite slave has to be let free at the, by the, in the Jubilee year. The, the foreigner is a different category. Jubilee year means the seventh year? Jubilee year is the 50th year. If we have time, we'll, we'll get to that. So the Israelites are a different category. Remember, this is in a time and place different from our own. On the other hand, it says that the foreigner shall be treated, it says love the foreigner as you love yourself and treat them as you would want to be treated. But they're not a citizen and it's a different category. It's not so different than our own because we have laws for citizens. Yes, it's like laws for citizens and non-citizens. That's right. That's right. So now there's one more place where the sabbatical year is talked about. And that is in Exodus. Um, and it's brief. I'll just read it to you. Six years. Well, no, look at page 520. You want to see this. Page 520. This is Exodus chapter 23, verse 10. Exodus chapter 23, verse 10 on page 520. Well, look at verse 9 first, because the verse that comes before is very important. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but in the seventh you shall let it rest and lie fallow. 
And the Hebrew words are tishmetena, hashvi'it tishmetena unetashta. You shall let it, you shall release it and let it go. That's really a better translation in English. It doesn't say, uh, I mean, rest and lie fallow. I would translate that as release it and let it go. And what's the connection with, with verse 9 and verse 10? We'd have to figure that out ourselves. Um, but uh, given, um, given that the language about stranger is going to come up in other places um, related to the Sabbath, I think that's, I think that's the relationship. Because we're supposed to, re- I think we're supposed to remember that we were strangers in the land of Egypt. Anytime a seven comes up, it's an opportunity to recall that condition and therefore have compassion for the powerless among us, who we are naturally inclined to dominate. Right? We have to practice this as an act of compassion, you know, an act of um, projecting to what it must be like for them, because our natural our natural impulse is not going to be to treat them uh, as we would want to be treated. We, they're in a different category. Six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but in the seventh year you shall release it and let it go. Let the needy among your people eat of it, and what they leave let the wild beasts eat. You shall do the same with your vineyards and your olive groves. And then it says, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, Shabbat Tishbot, in order that your ox and your ass may rest, and that your home-born slave and the stranger may be refreshed. Okay, that's very important because um, the word refresh in Hebrew is vayinafash. Just like God. Just like God. Uvayom hashvi'i, on the seventh day, God Shabbat, rested vagina fash and was refreshed everybody who the homeborn slave the resident alien the guy who doesn't have a green card right the gardener the one you're paying under the table it's like nope seventh day they are equivalent to god because god made the human beings in god's image and, and then it extends, of course, to your ox and your ass. You are not the Lord. You, are, you do not lord it over them, even though God has given you dominion six days of the week. That is only, that, that's not the, that is not the ultimate goal. It's, you see how it just sort of like is explicit here? I love this. This doesn't take much interpreting in my opinion, to get to what the Torah is insisting that the seventh is for, the seventh year and the seventh day. Was there other religious communities that still have the Shabbos Goy? Sure. Yes, so how do they... Is they well, they pay the Shabbos Goy. A Shabbos Goy, so because as Judaism develops, as, as Judaism develops over the years, there are so many restrictions placed on what you can and can't do on Shabbat that you actually need help from somebody to get it all done. And that person in Yiddish is called a Shabbos Goy. You find a non-Jew who you pay, 
who's going to turn on the lights for you or make sure that your stove is okay or... That's in direct contradiction to this. No, because you're paying them. And they have another day off. And they don't live with you. They're only working one day. They're only working one day for you. You, They can quit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I don't think it's in direct... I know that it's, it's a legal fiction, but you're not lording it over them. You've made an arrangement with them because they don't observe the same Sabbath as you. They don't work for you for the six days. I mean, the, the, you're, okay. you don't control them. They can right. say, heck with this, I quit. <laughs> they're not slaves. I think it's a little seedy. I think it's a little seedy. I've always thought it is. But, but I don't, that's a, Diane, that's another story. Yeah. Um, however. I thought we read that it said, you know, everybody should not work. Everyone in your household. In your household. Everyone in your household that because in a in this in this clan-based society, the head of the household was the master of whoever was in his and it was his whoever was in in his clan in his household. Your word you're the boss. But so the Shabbos goy is a different is is your homeborn slave and the stranger who, the okay, the stranger who resides with you. Who's in your household. The stranger in your household. Again, think of a time where an ag- agrarian-based society, if you didn't have land, you were reliant on the kindness of strangers, right? And so a stranger, a foreigner, would want to find employ, or maybe it's room and board in exchange for labor, because you're far, because you've wandered for whatever reason, you're in, not in your own home territory, and you have no, you can't get a job in the city. You can't. This is an agrarian. This is an agrarian society. So, um, uh, you that stranger has no recourse. They've been accepted into, and I'm sure this is still true in Bedouin cultures. You've been accepted into this household, and you are now under the protection of the of the of the the head of the household. And I think it's that kind of language. Yeah? yeah. Um, what always strikes me is that the verb that's being used for the slave and the stranger that they were refreshed is the word nefesh. Right. Nefesh. The word is used when God rests. When God rests. But nefesh is soul. Is soul. Nefesh is soul or life. Right. right? And so it's a beautiful word. It's you are restored to life. But it, it puts the human and God, whether slave, alien, whatever, they share that same something. Yes. yes. <laughs> so for us, us who don't necessarily think that there was a divine being who proclaimed that the seventh day and the, was the day of rest, uh, uh, the Torah is establishing that the heart of the universe itself says this is the rhythm that you must follow in order to live in harmony. They, they ascribe this. And then humans, when we say made in the image of God, that, that's what's being sort of in there, that there's something about us and God yeah. that are, whatever we mean by the mystery, if, if, if we believe in this at all, are somehow, in same Torah language, language we, we are the same in this. We We're the same. Something gets something. I mean, I like, the, I like the translation re-ensouled, but I know that's yes. not a classic translation. It's a good translation. It's a wonderful translation. Ye nafash, to be re-ensouled, to get your soul back. So let's play with that for a minute, and then I'll call on you, Carol. Let, let's play with that for a minute, because 
As somebody said to me recently, and I've been using this, I wish I could remember who said it, because I want to honor them, um, but I don't remember. We may not know what the soul is, but we know when we've lost it. Right. I thought that was a great line, and I've been using it. We may not know exactly what the soul is, but you know when somebody's lost their soul. They're and you know when, hmm? They're limping. They're limping? No, they've lost their soul. Oh, oh, Jerome. <laughs> no, it's good. We can go that way. Just a second, Stu. Just a sec. I'll recognize you in a minute. Um, uh, in that sense, Shabbat is the time when we regain our unique soul, our neshama, where whatever we've been reduced to as an it as a cog, as a, something of utility, is completely over, and our inherent dignity is recognized and restored. That's the idea. Carol? The thing that I'm hearing differently, I think, than ever before is, is was it Deuteronomy where it says, and therefore, um, you shall treat them because so that you can you treat the slaves well. Mm -hmm. the, the whole system is designed so that the whole system so that you treat each other well. Mm -hmm. There's no other there's no other reason for it other than you treat each other well. And it, 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 it's like you can boil it right down to that, so that all the laws and all the all all the ins and outs and things that it's all about that. It's extraordinary. Yes, I find this it whole extraordinary. Book, this whole five thousand years of history comes down to that one extraordinary even discovery that somewhere along the line people made that you, you, you're not going to live well if you don't treat each other well. And, 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 and the rest is commentary. And that's why in the way the Torah works, as I understand it, where everything has a reason and what cause and effect, we had to be enslaved in Egypt. Right. We had to be enslaved in Egypt so we would know the feelings of the stranger so that we would have the capacity to enact this. Um, and so if we think of our own lives, you know, we have to ha experience our sufferings uh, so that we can know what it feels like to be in that condition so that we make sure we don't treat other people in that way again. Stu? Yeah, I've been struggling with the concept of a soul. Talk partly, a little louder, Stu. Partly because Maeve, being a Buddhist, says the Buddhist says there is no soul. But that's a different thing. And I've also been reading a little bit of the Tanya and um, Rabbi Rami. Rami and, Shapiro. And uh -huh. The idea of a soul is when we have a connection with people, we say, okay, I'm buying this from you. That's an I, it. When we see the, the face of God, or we say namaste, or we see the soul of a person, we're thinking of a, of a deeper connection between people, something that is really we have this image, that feeling that there's something greater than you and me, and I'm separate from you. 
we see this connection. And that, to me, has that aspect of a soul. And, and uh, I, I love that feeling, too. That was and, very nicely put. Yes, go and on. And when you say, oh, he's a good soul, mm-hmm. what do you mean by that? Well, you mean that really he sees something in you. It's sort of like Joseph, um, Jacob, seeing his brother and saying, mm-hmm. I see the face of God in you. Mm-hmm. He was having an I-thou connection with mm-hmm. his brother. Before that, it was an I-thit one. If I go there, he's going to kill me. I better do something different. Mm-hmm. So there are those kind of things. Here. Nicely put. Bob? It's Boober. Boober, yes. I-it and I-thou is Boober's coinage, Martin Boober's coinage. Thank you. The distinction between I-it and I-thou. Right, where you treat objects for their utility, rather than you commune with them for their inherent um, in, uh, incalculable value. Now, he can also, you can also do it with a tree in Boober. Yeah, yeah. Gail? Um, the English is, in our translation is, you know the feelings of the, of the stranger. But the word is nefesh. Yeah, datamet, thank you. Yeah, datamet, nefesh hager. And our translator said, you know the feeling of the stranger, but the Hebrew is, you know the soul of the stranger. That is such a, I'm so glad you pointed that out. Karen? I know you all miss me on this, but the gematria. We have missed you. We missed you. The nefesh for nefesh is, um, it adds up to 430, which reduces to seven. Um, so I think that's a very important Oh, so nefesh, nun, pe, shin, is? Four, three, four and three plus zero. No, 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 no. Nun is 50, pay is 80, and shin is 300, which is 430. I've got to tell you something else. So 4 plus 3 is 7. So nefesh is 7. But 430 is also the declared number of years that we were slaves in the land of Egypt. Wow. <laughs> that's what, think, that's, that's asking for something. Something about our nefesh being connected to our years in slavery. Well, what builds character? What gives you your soulfulness? You know, how do you sing the blues? Uh, Wow. Wow. Okay. Thank you for noticing that, Gail, and thank you for that, Karen. Uh, Now, uh, let's look back in our Parsha a little longer. But no, I had to show you all of that. Page 850 is back where we are. That's Leviticus chapter 25. Um, Hold on, let's read from verse 8 first. Because we have to get the concept out there. Now listen to the Hebrew. The Safartelacha Sheva Shabbatot. Shanim Sheva Shanim Sheva Pa'amim. Vahayulacha Yeme Sheva Shabbatot Hashanim Teshava Abraim Shana. So the word Sheva and so now we're talking about seven sevens. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years. So that the period of seven weeks of years gives you a total of 49 <coughs> years. And then in the 50th year, it says, you shall ha'avarta shofar, blow the shofar, a true ah, a great blast, 
Bachodesh Hashvi'i, in the seventh month. Okay, again, for those unfamiliar with this, in the Bible, the first month of the year is not Rosh Hashanah. The first month of the year is Passover, Pesach, Nisan, spring. And if you count from the month of Nisan, Nisan, Er, Sivan, uh, Tevet, Av, Elul, six months. This, uh, did I dismiss Tammuz? I said Tevet, Tammuz. Um, the seventh month is Tishrei, is the month of Rosh Hashanah. So again, some of you have heard me say this before, so forgive me, but if you'll notice, the seventh month is a sabbatical month in the Jewish calendar. It begins with Rosh Hashanah, then on 10 days later, it's Yom Kippur, and then four days after that, there's an eight-day festival called Sukkot. You can't get any work done until the 24th day of Tishrei. Um, it's meant to be that way. Your harvest is supposed to be in, and um, you have a sabbatical month. The seventh month is the sabbatical month of the year. So, um, you shall sound the shofar loud in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, that is Yom HaKippurim, you shall sound the shofar in all your land. And you shall make the 50th year holy, and you shall proclaim release throughout the land for all its inhabitants. Right? I, I always have to say this every year, that's what's on the Liberty Bell. Yeah. Proclaim liberty throughout the land for all its inhabitants thereof. Oh yes, it says there, the fact that this verse was inscribed on the Liberty Bell might suggest to the modern reader that liberty here refers to national autonomy or civil rights, neither of which was on the author's mind. Yeah. What's on the author's mind is what would be considered true liberty in the time of the Bible. What is that? Let's take a look. Each of you shall return to your ancestral land holding, and each of you shall return to your family. This is for people who have lost their means of um, self, what's the word I'm looking for? Autonomy. Autonomy, right. They've lost their autonomy. It's not the freedom that we understand is the freedom to get in the car and drive to Las Vegas. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the freedom that comes with being restored to the ability to support yourself with dignity on your own land with your own family. Um, that 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow, neither shall you reap the aftergrowth or harvest the untrimmed vines. It's a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may only eat the growth direct from the field. Uh, what's the other 50 that we're in the midst of right now? We're counting the Omer. Right, the Omer. It says, and on the day after the Sabbath, uh, at Passover you shall count seven weeks times seven weeks, 49 days, and on the 50th day shall be a festival for the Lord, the festival of Shavuot. And you shall celebrate that festival, you, your household, your male and female slave, and the stranger in your midst, and you shall all rejoice. Right, so Shavuot as the 50th day, and the Jubilee year as the 50th year, 
you know, have, the, again, this quality of the great equalizing of society. Yeah? When is uh, the next Jubilee year? We don't seem to be observing the Jubilee year anymore. <laughs> and in fact, we've talked about this, there's plenty of biblical and post-biblical evidence that the sabbatical year was observed. But this idea of a Jubilee year, we don't know whether it was ever observed because there are no external sources to corroborate it. And when you think about it, it's so utopian. It so goes against human nature. It's like, okay, everybody, whatever you've built up over the last 50 years, everybody return to go, collect $200, and put all your money back in the pot. <laughs> and land on free parks. Back. <laughs> it's not actually that. That's what I'm noticing in verse... Uh, 13, there's actually a formula. Yeah. The oh, plan. here's the formula. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to your holding. When you sell property to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, al tonu ish et you shall not wrong one another. Tonu is also, also a word for oppress or mistreat. In buying from your neighbor, you shall deduct only for the number of years since the Jubilee. And in selling to you, that person shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. The more such years, the higher the price you pay. The fewer such years, the lower the price. For what is being sold to you is a number of harvests. Mm. We're getting somewhere. We're gonna, before we're done, we're going to get to verse 23. Do not wrong one another. Fear your God, for I, the Eternal, am your God. Okay, so the idea here is that we don't own the land. Somebody owns the land. Who? God. No. Nope. Nope. Each person owns their own land. You have to read to the end of the chapter. You have to both say, this is my land. The point is, we are leaseholders from God. We don't, oh, we have a long-term lease from God. We don't own the land. And the value of the property in human terms is the value of the number of harvests that remain until the next Jubilee year when everyone gets to start over. So if you want to accumulate land, you don't accumulate land. You accumulate the value of the produce of the land. But you have your own holding, which you lease from God in perpetuity, which is a long time. That's a long time, but uh, you... Uh, and then you rent it to your neighbor, or you right. rent from Right, but after neighbor. 50 years, the okay. lease is right. up. your lease is up. You don't have it in perpetuity. Okay. You have the privilege of living on that land. Your lease with God is still until you read chapter 26. Uh, if you don't do this, chapter 26 is, and we're not going to have time for today, chapter 26 is what happens to you if you do not allow the land to have its Sabbaths. It will spit you out. Huh? The land will, you will not be able to live on the land. Why? Because it doesn't belong to you. You have violated your lease. And the, your lease is dependent on how you treat the land and how you treat one another. So no, the land is not yours. Even the lease is not in perpetuity, except that it says, eventually, God will, uh, you know, when, you, when the land has made up for the Sabbath that it missed, God will have compassion and, 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 and allow you to start over again. Uh, people want to say something. Gail? Just, oh. it's, it's not just about 
Just a second, Helen. I'll get you in a second. Focusing on, on the Shabbat for the land, but when it says at the end, follow all my laws and commandments, it's all of it. And we've been. Thank you for the reminder. Again, we've been taken out of Egypt. It says again, and it uses it here several times. We've been taken out of Egypt by the mystery so that we become servants of the mystery. And being servants of the mystery means we follow the rules, mm -hmm. which have to do with how we treat one another primarily. And if we don't, there are consequences. Right. That's right. It's not just about the land. Helen? So all, all the people who use the Bible to hit you over the head with your verses that, you know, yeah. you didn't do this and you should do that and you shouldn't be a homosexual because it's written right here. All you have to do is, what about that part? Nobody ever talks about that. We should tell all the people with student loans that every seven years. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm, I am now empowering you to take the gospel and spread this gospel to all of humankind. Okay, because I think this is the heart of the Torah. So yes, uh, you are now empowered to 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 uh, thump on your verses of Torah right here. So. Here's a couple more things I want to show you. So then it says in verse 18, you shall observe my laws and faithfully keep my rules that you may live upon the land in security, levetach. That's the source of security. The land shall yield its fruit and you shall eat your fill and you shall live on it in security. And here it is in Hebrew, Ve'achaltem la sova. That's that word, sheva and sova. I thought they had to get rid of their land. I thought they had to sell their land. No, 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 no. Everyone has, I'm in verse, chapter 25, verse 19. Okay, Amy. No, no, no. Everyone, everyone in this idealized vision of ancient Israelite society has their own land holding. If in the course of 50 years, you, because you came upon hard times, had to sell, not your land holding, but the value of the harvests, because no one owns the land, you're a leaseholder, the value of the harvest to someone else, and you became a part of their household to pay, in, because you couldn't pay your debt. At 50 years, the person who acquired that must release it back to you. Back to you. Got so it. that you can get a fresh start. Okay. 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 So now it says, That's verse 19. Then the earth shall give its produce. Sova. Sova, you shall eat to satiation. Vyashavtem. Look at yashavtem. What's the word you see in there? Shabbat. Shabbat's in there too. Yoshev means to dwell. It's related to Shabbat, which means to sit or dwell. So the idea of seven and Shabbat are echoed in the language of Torah here. Sova, v'yashavtem, insecurity on your land. And should you ask, what are we to eat in the seventh year? If we may neither sow nor gather in our crops, I will ordain my blessing for you in the sixth year so that it shall yield a sufficient crop for three years. That's like the manna, everybody. Yeah. On the sixth day, you can collect a double portion. Mm. It's like uh, God will provide. Now, again, I don't, I don't think being literal is helpful here. Mm -hmm. 
Um, this is about betach. Bitachon means trust. Mm. Um, just a second, Anne. Mm. When you sow in the eighth year, you will still be eating old grain of that crop. You will be eating the old until the ninth year until its crops come in. Yes, Anne, what did you want to say? Isn't that a contradiction of uh, you can't, um, the Sabbath year? You can't eat anything that you planted. No, but I guess they're saying in this year that you'll have it in storage. You'll have it in your silo. Yes, but it's but the land is getting a rest. Yeah, I believe that's what it means. And here's the climax. But the land cannot be sold beyond reclaim. For the land is mine. You are but strangers resident with me. Okay, the great spirit owns, is belong, the earth belongs to the great spirit. We belong to the great spirit. The great spirit gave us this land. We have to give thanks and live in harmony with the land and each other in gratitude for what the great spirit has given us. Um, This is a this is a tribal people who understand this in their bones. We are the disconnected urban dwellers who buy and sell property. It's I've said this many times, but it always reminds me of the Manahatta of the Indians, the Native Americans who uh, um, um, is it Peter Stuyvesant? Who is it? Henry Hudson? Yes. Peter Stuyvesant gives him twenty-three dollars no, worth. Peter Minuet. Peter Minuet gives him $23 worth of stuff and buys Manhattan. And the next year, and what I understand from my history reading, the next year these, these uh, natives came back in order to hunt again. And we're shoot off. And the, the, West, the Europeans said, what are you doing here? We bought the land for you. And they said, what? <laughs> what? What does that mean? It didn't mean anything to them. It was just, it just doesn't mean anything. Uh, so it's hard to burrow beneath our, I mean, I read the real estate section in the New York Times. <laughs> I have a lot of fun reading the real estate section in the New York Times. I dream about apartments in the New York, you know, it's like, it's one of my hobbies. So. To burrow underneath that, to this true awareness, we don't own the land. We emerge from the earth. We're made up of the land. We eat it in order to sustain ourselves. The land is our, is our life. We don't own it. Oh, Stu? Yeah, just, it's interesting. It almost seems as if the hunter-gatherers often don't have that idea, I own the land. I mean, they may fight with each other who gets the produce there. Yeah. And this is really a way of saying, going from a hunter-gatherer to a farming thing, right. which has this idea, this is my land, you can't touch it. It's almost as if this thing was a way of doing a transition that made it much more natural. And, uh, and it's a wonderful thing. I wish, because we know the American Indians, they didn't have that sense of owning land. That's crazy. It just wasn't in their conceptual universe, is what I'm saying. And it was not in the conceptual universe 
of the ancient Hebrews that they could own land. And the Bedouin and the, and the nomads must have had a very similar thing. They're going from place to place, and they're not owning the land, and they're just taking up what it is there. So there is a transition in, in Judaism of the whole world, actually. Right. From By the time of Rabbi Hillel, Rome is a cosmopolitan empire. Many Jews are city dwellers. The sabbatical laws aren't working. And um, Rabbi Hillel creates what's called a uh, prosbul, which means a legal... Um, he overrules the Torah, basically, and says that, no, you do not have to release debts in the seventh year. We've created this legal fiction whereby you don't have to do it. The reason he did it is that credit was freezing up in the sixth year. The economy couldn't work. No one was willing to loan. It's not an agrarian society where everyone's raising their own food. It's a, it's a, it's a currency-based society now. It didn't work. So you have to take the concept and figure out how to adapt it. So we are not going to be able to do this literally. It was, but there, but there are, uh, I, I talked about in the class last fall that there is a um, movement, especially in Israel, because the sabbatical year is very <coughs> present there. I mean, it's a whole thing. You look in the supermarket and the fruit has to have a sticker saying it wasn't raised on, uh, uh, by Jews in the land of Israel. And the Gaza Strip does, just does incredible, it's ironic, isn't it? They do incredible business with their vegetables because ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel will not buy produce raised in Israel. On the other hand, Rav Cook instituted something called the Heter Mechira, where you could sell your land for a dollar to a Gentile that year so that you could still uh, work the land, blah, 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 blah. That's the prosbul, isn't it? Where you could sell? Well, it's, it's, is that the prosbul? I'm not sure. But uh, it was a new innovation by Rav Cook, somehow related to, uh, uh, different than Hillel, because Hillel was about debts, Rav Cook was about the land itself. Frozen vegetables would work. Frozen vegetables? <laughs> hey, th you've got to read these articles in the, in the, in the uh, English language Israeli press. Yeah, I mean, they could be uh, last year. Oh, no, no, no. There's a whole giant hydroponic plant that's been created in Israel because you're not growing it land. on the land. Oh, oh my God. And, okay, none of this interests me. <laughs> Pigs on boxes? Now, none of this interests me. What interested me are other initiatives going on in Israel in, um, in more of the secular and um, uh, non-Orthodox society. One initiative what is to forgive debts of, of people who are impoverished. Mm -hmm. And there has been, there's a successful initiative. Some, some, I didn't bring the document with me. It's in my file where some, some 10,000 individuals or families who were suffering from debt in the sabbatical year are getting debt forgiveness. And this has gotten some traction in the government. Uh, there are all kinds of ways we could apply this sublime concept to creating a more equal society where every, what's the principle here? Everyone gets treated with dignity. Right? Nobody becomes the, um, uh, the, nobody's power is um, permanent, 
right? There's an understanding that could permeate society were this um, concept to be implemented. And I must say that if you look on something called the Shemitah Project online, you will see a whole series of initiatives that progressive Jews in Israel have been trying to do this year to enact the spirit of the sabbatical year. It's quite beautiful. Pardon? No, they, they, the ultra-Orthodox interpretation is the Torah is crystal clear. The Shemitah year only pertains to the land of Israel. Now that they have returned to the land of Israel, they need to fulfill every mitzvah to the letter. The spirit is not important in that regard. However, I'm sure within their communities, they treat each other well. So I, I, I want to say that within their cir closed circle, I presume they are fulfilling also the way you're supposed to treat one another on Shabbat to the best of their ability, just like we do to the best of ours. But the, to do this, to do this uh, process of what's the intent and how can we apply it to our contemporary situation as people who fully inhabit and embrace uh, the, the, the big, big, big bad world. Um, no, none of that's happening in the Haredi world. But it is happening in the secular world in Israel, which is quite fascinating. Yes, Amy? So are we now in? A, a yes. And that started in April? It started April. in September at Rosh Hashanah. Oh, I thought you said the year starts. In the Bible, the year started in April, but for 2,000 years, the new year has been Rosh Hashanah. Okay. It's shifted in time. Okay. Yes, no, it started at Rosh Hashanah. Um, the sabbatical year began. There are beautiful rabbinic midrashim elaborating on how you're supposed to treat the sabbatical year. And one was that between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, before you release the people who've been indentured to you, you give them good clothes, they sit at your table, you treat them as equals. There are beautiful rabbinic teachings about that. And then you don't let them leave empty-handed, right? Uh, it's like the rabbinic midrashim about this, get it, right? What's it really mean if you're really going to do this? What's your intent in how you treat one another? So seven is the number. Uh, and uh, it's time to stop for today. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Thank you. Schedule stuff. Schedule stuff. <laughs>